Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious opportunity to fellowship together as a redeemed and blood-bought saints that you have made so by your work and merit alone. As we open up your scriptures, I pray that you would open up our hearts to receive them. Lord, I pray by the sovereign touch of your Spirit's hand that our spiritual eyes would be open to see the glories and the truth infallibly and forever declared, immutable, unchangeable, and gloriously returning unto that which you have commissioned them to achieve. Lord, let them be illumined to our eyes by the sovereign touch of your Spirit's hand today. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be soft like clay to receive the implement of your hand to write upon them, Lord Jesus, the precepts, the promises, the instructions, Lord, the revelation of who you are, your worth, your works, and your attributes, so that it might be set upon us, Lord, that we as new covenant believers might be fulfillment of the prophecy. I will write upon their hearts my law, and upon them I will do a sovereign work such that they will follow me, displaying the fruits of their salvation ever increasing unto glory, changed into the same image even by the Spirit of God, fulfilling the sanctification call incrementally of the Spirit's work, the life of a new believer. Lord, we pray that you would compel us, Lord Jesus, to be moved by your word today, to sacrifice things of the flesh, to lay aside weights and hindrances that easily beset, and to set our affections and mind upon the things that are eternal and forever in the heavens. I pray that you would equip us to testify to your great salvation, Lord, beyond this place by the power of your word to give us every tool for our spiritual battle. Let the armaments be fixed upon each believer in this place. And if there are any who fellowship among us who do not have the assurance and seal of the Holy Spirit of their eternal redemption, I pray today that through the preaching of the Word, Lord, that you would work faith in their hearts by the power of Almighty God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have done this for so many here today and that you continue to do so with each day you graciously tarry with this world. We thank you for your power, Lord, displayed in our lives and beyond this place, even in all of nature, which sings to the praise of your great name. And we thank you that your eternal plans are unfolding each day according to what you have ordained, such that all creation, heaven and earth, the whole universe, serves and will serve to give you glory. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Praise the Lord for the opportunity to open His Scriptures. And what a tender gift, what a kindness it is to the Lord that He gives us His Word and He gives us, in Christ, salvation and each other. And this morning is Communion Sunday, so we will celebrate, remember, and proclaim all of those things in the giving and hearing of the Word and in the celebration of the Lord's table today. Open in your Scriptures, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10 today, and let us continue in our Hebrews series where the author of this great book expounds in depth and detail the connections of the Old Covenant and how they are fulfilled manifestly, gloriously, powerfully, and perpetually in Jesus Christ our Lord. Hebrews chapter 10, 1-10 will be our text today. In a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Today my sermon title is Deficits and Attainments. Deficits and Attainments. There are two different aspects to the history of redemption that the author touches upon. And in this section, the first he labels the first order, which could be the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the nature of things, and God's revelation prior to the coming of Christ. And then the second is, of course, the New Testament, or the second order. And he highlights for us deficits in the first and attainments in the second. Attainments are accomplishments, things that... The Lord of the covenant, the covenant head, the covenant keeper, the covenant sacrifice, high priest and redeemer, Jesus Christ has accomplished as a result of his finished work on Calvary and beyond. So that's a brief introduction for you. So if you're able, stand with me, if you would, for the reading of God's holy word today, with your Bible open to Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. And let us read of the glories of the new covenant, starting in verse 1. Follow me as I declare God's infallible word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be the same sacrifices 
that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first order to establish the second, and by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Once again, we can note in these profound phrases and this argumentation, the way the author has laid out the revelation of the work of Christ as it relates to redemption and fulfills the Old Covenant we see displayed, showcased before us in this literary work of Hebrews in chapter 10, the genius of its author. The genius of the author of Hebrews continues to astound the spiritually attentive reader. It becomes more and more clear that the illuminating power of new covenant realities equips the true believer with cross-covenantal understanding, if you will an understanding of God's movement through the course of history, Old Covenant into the New, and this understanding, even as we have it revealed to us today, I would venture to say rivals that of any prophet pre-incarnation. Any prophet, messenger of Christ, who had a revelation, as sound as it was, not as sufficient as what was, was revealed when Christ revealed Himself in the New. Thus, the precious Word of Christ revealed in its full scope, in the fullness of redemption, has the power to illumine what was merely shadow and substance of old and to identify what is uh, or shadow and typology of old and to identify what is substance and fulfillment in the new. And again, this theme which has been woven throughout the book comes to the fore in our text today. The difficult prescriptions and parameters the ceremonial uh, codes and laws and all of the precepts of the Old Covenant related to these things, these shadows, as the Bible calls them and as our text refers to them, they become a faint memory and light of their object and fulfillment. The shadowy practices of the ceremonial sacrifices such as we have it recorded on the Day of Atonement where the blood of beasts, namely bulls and goats, was sacrificed for the temporal and typological remission of sins, becomes something uh, of almost a faded memory or something that is of the past in light of the object and fulfillment. Now as we look to Christ, those things grow strangely dim, as it were, in the light of His glory and grace, as the hymn declares. Think of this analogy for a moment. A man may stumble through a dark hallway. You might have woken up in the middle of the night in a very profound sleep to the sound of one of your children screaming in the other room. And I know it's been a habit of mine to stub my toes several times as I'm groping in the darkness looking for a light switch. At that moment, when I'm stumbling through a dark hallway, I don't really appreciate the architecture and purpose of my home. In fact, Just getting from point A to point B in total darkness seems more like a burden and a trial than anything else. I don't really recognize the benefit of the home until I turn on the light. And then when when my environment becomes uh, illumined such as we have it when a light switch is flipped in a dark hallway, we can appreciate more readily 
the architecture and purpose of our dwelling, its form and function. All of the toys and walls cease to be obstacles, and now the hallway is a path from point A to point B. And this is something like the difference our author highlights in our text today between the first order or the old covenant, which he describes as the law, which we can see contextually as a ceremonial law prescribed in the worship order of the Old Testament, so that as compared to the second order or new covenant, when the light switch of revelation illumines what had been merely shadow before, and now all is revealed in the light of Christ's amazing new covenant uh, revelation. The old covenant is notable part, the author tells us, for its deficiencies, in fact. He notes where it falls short of what man needed as far as his salvation was concerned. While the new covenant, on the other hand, is stunning as the believer considers how these deficits, these things that were deficiencies or, or, or needful and were missing, are superseded in the attainments or accomplishments, the work of Christ. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you would. The author of Hebrews is not the only one. Well, he may be also the author of 2 Corinthians. We don't really know. There certainly seems to be parallel, well, there certainly is parallel ideas with many of Paul's epistles. And so speculation abounds as to who wrote these books, and many do believe that Paul wrote both. But one thing we know for sure is they share the same ultimate author, the Spirit of God. So whether they're a different individual or the same, we have behind both revelations or both uh, records of New Testament, New Covenant revelation, these types of themes. Think of the difference between the shadow of old and the substance of the new. Or like that picture I gave you, stumbling in the darkness versus turning on the light switch. Think of that analogy as we read a few verses in 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, There is freedom, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So you see the contrast there, do you not? You see the glorious unveiling, the fulfilling, if you will, where the old covenant had value, But there was a shrouded, there was a a blockage, there was a barrier of sorts between a full understanding of what salvation would be. And then we see by contrast where that veil is removed. And there's only one way to see clearly, it's through Christ. All who turn to Christ have the veil lifted. Yet for some, the veil, tragically the veil still remains in fact for all who are not brought to newness of life, regeneration, by the power of the Spirit's work alone. Let us pray that the veil will lift for others, as it has for us, if you are in Him today. Let us pray that the light switch of God's truth would be turned on in the heart and soul of those who are lost and stumbling about in the darkness, held captive like waves on the sea to every wind of doctrine. Let us pray, as Hebrews 10 tells us, that what has been a shadow and what has been old and obsolete would be rendered as such and would be gloriously superseded in the hearts of those who realize that Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant. This morning, 2 Corinthians 3, Hebrews 10, and many other passages of Scripture we don't have time to touch on today describe the contrast in revelatory perspective evident from two different vantage points. The one is history B.C., if you will. Before Christ, that was the veiled vantage point. Before Christ, that was the uh, shadow vantage point. But but then there's the second 
a vantage point, if you will, perspective, and that's history A.D., after Christ. And here we find the New Testament Scriptures unfolding with all the richness, richness and glory, the difference that Christ has made as He has come and fulfilled what the old has spoken of. And note one example of this in our text today as we begin to get into Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. The richness of the Scriptures, and in particular Psalm 40, which is cited in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. The richness of the Scriptures appreciated in light, if you will, of the lifted veil. Today we can appreciate in Hebrews chapter 10 the interpretation, the application, the understanding the substance behind the shadow of Psalm chapter 40, a few verses select there that are referenced and then fulfilled in Christ's messianic work. One example of the lifted veil that opens up the recesses of Scripture for us to appreciate and to give glory to God for in our understanding. Here's a heading for you this morning with just two major points today. Corresponding covenant realities expounded. So corresponding covenant realities expounded. And the first category, major heading or or major point, first order deficits. And the second, second order attainments. So corresponding covenant realities. There are realities in the old covenant. There are deficits. We'll cover three. The old covenant was powerless to perfect. It was powerless to cleanse. And it was powerless to expiate. And I'll give you a definition in due course. Powerless to perfect, cleanse, and expiate. And then the second heading, this or second major point this morning, second order attainments. Three things that Christ has accomplished. He's abolished, established, and sanctified. Abolished the old, established the new, and sanctified us. These are taken directly from our context today. So let's explore a little more deeply. Reading again Hebrews 10.1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be the same sacrifices that by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Again, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. First order deficits, number one, powerless to perfect. The law such as it was, the shadow such as things were, was powerless. It never could, by those sacrifices, make perfect those who draw near. Let me open with an illustration for you to demonstrate perhaps an example of the audience that this book was written to. I've often thought it's been a little bit hard for me to make an attachment in our experience or my own experience to the audience that was receiving these words because I understand in the context that those who were receiving the book of Hebrews were tempted to return to the first order deficits, if you will. They found in many cases, it seemed, or at least were tempted by what was familiar to them traditionally culturally perhaps, and even what was more acceptable in their community, their family, their friends, their uh, village, who knows. But it seems for whatever reason there was a temptation for the uh, hearers of this letter to return to the ceremonial imperfections, the uh, shadow and the typology of the old, and in so doing to really apostatize, to turn away from the fulfillment of Christ as the once-for-all final sacrifice in the new. So I've asked myself, does that relate to us today? Are we tempted to do such a thing? How is the book of Hebrews relevant for a group of you know, people in America who have a lot of distance, culturally speaking, ethnically speaking, from ancient Judaism? The, this week and a few weeks prior, I listened to two interviews, as God's providence would have it. One was something of a debate, the other was an interview. I suppose, and both of them involved an Orthodox Jew, somebody who is alive today who traces their heritage to the Jewish people, but more than that, finds a religious connection, a very impassioned cultural 
and spiritual attachment to Old Testament, Old Covenant Judaism. Very interesting. <clears throat> the first debate I listened to, there were two individuals, and they're arguing the merits of the modern Jewish state. And this young man, as he explained, his passion for his connection to his culture, his people, and religion as far as he knew it, was stunning. Honestly, it put many you know, Christians, self-professed Christians' passion to shame. As he talked about the rabbis who wrote the Mishnah, who, did, who, create, who wrote down, recorded the commentaries on the Torah, as he talked about the prophets of old whose sandal-shodden feet walked to and fro across the wilderness of the Near East, you could hear his voice get choked up. He so longed to commune with them. He said, in, at one point, if he could talk to them, he knows he would have an instant connection because he had memorized everything there was to know about what their characteristics might have been, the substance of what their teaching was, the places that they traveled, and that which they fo- fixed their attention on, and the books that they wrote. He knew them inside and out. That it was a communion bond with his heritage that was coming through. He begged, pleading with tears in his voice, that artifacts of his old covenant Judaism would be returned to his homeland. He wanted old copies of the Torah that had been found in caves and now locked in vaults in like Swiss banks or the Vatican to come back. We'll pay any price, he says. I just want them back. He cried out from the depths of his soul that those who were true Jews, who could demonstrate as much ethnically, would bind themselves. And yes, that they would live in peace with their neighbors, but they would understand that they have a claim to the land. He walked with his two daughters into the most dangerous parts of the war-torn sections of Jerusalem at the threat of rocks while stones were being thrown at him. He walked there with his appropriate dress and attire to pray and to demonstrate with his feet that he was walking on ground that his ancestors had claimed to. Boy, it really moved me as I listened. And then the other example was a man who was interviewing a Christian, he himself an Orthodox Jew. And he told, it was a congenial exchange, but there were sharp differences. This man told the Christian, he said, that the Christian actually was a converted Jew. He had, he called himself a secular Jew, but he had found the Messiah. He had found hope in Jesus Christ. He was a, a Christian now. And so the Orthodox Jew said, this is not good news for me. I, in fact, I don't consider you a Christian, really. Uh, when I think about it, in the most appropriate terms, I think of you as a Jew who is out of covenant. Who is Jesus to this man? He said, well, as near as he could figure, he was, yeah, he was a historical, well-intentioned, but misguided Jew who launched a zealot movement that invariably failed, as many of them did, and then his followers built up uh, props, spiritual props around him. And as I listened, I realized a little bit of what it would be like to be tempted by and led astray by things other than Christ alone. For you and me, it may not be the accoutrements and the cultural connection and the ethnic heritage of ancient Judaism, but it might be something else. Here's the question. Are we seeking the shadow and in doing so trampling on the object? Both of these men, this is exactly what they were doing. They were finding hope in the shadow, and they were trampling on the object that cast the shadow, as it were. Jesus Christ is the form, the substance, that which is, can be tangibly attached to the hope of anyone who's ever lived, be they Jew or Gentile. And they were trampling Him underfoot and groping in the darkness in search of the shadow. The mere typology, the form, the externals, the, uh, the traditions, the ideas of men that had long grown, or the ideas of men right now trying to preserve something by God's sovereign hand had long grown obsolete. Think of it this way, anyone who seeks the effects of salvation devoid of the Savior would fall into this category. Seeking the effects of salvation devoid of the Savior These two men, I gave you their examples. What did they want? They wanted a meaningful identity. They wanted peace. And many of us can relate to all all of us, in fact, can relate to all these things. They wanted communion. They wanted identity. They wanted friendship and fellowship. They wanted the assuaging of their own guilt. We all want these things. 
If we seek the effects of salvation devoid of our Savior, we need the book of Hebrews. No matter the effect we are tempted by, as long as we are tempted to pursue the outward at the expense or devoid of the inward, the book of Hebrew, book of Hebrews is for us. Whenever we seek the effect without the source, without the substance, we will find ourselves at a deficit, a first order deficit, if you will. None of these things will be powerful to perfect. They will all, all the externals aside from Christ alone and His salvation, which is personally procured and His real death, burial, and resurrection and His supernatural incarnation and His intrusion into history, anything less is powerless to perfect. And that's what the Scriptures tell us today. There are three sets of word connections that highlight to us first-order deficits. Notice the first in 10.1. For since, and that is connected to it can never. Here's the, the way that the argument goes. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So first it says there is something that falls short of sufficiency And secondly, it says, therefore, it is powerless to do X, if you will. In this case, powerless to perfect. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, therefore, it can never make perfect those who draw near. The second word connection, to illustrate deficit number two, and we'll cover this in a moment, is otherwise in sense, in verse two. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered... Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? So we see that by the otherwise and the sins, that there's a relationship between the consciousness of sin and the demonstration of being cleansed. And then there's a third connection as well, and this is connected to the powerlessness of the law to expiate or to remove sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, this is verse 4, to take away sins. So, but in these sacrifices, for it is impossible. Since there is a reminder of sins every year, it proves the impossibility of the expiation or the taking away of sins. That's a little bit of a structure for us as we see how the author lays out his points. Under powerless to perfect, He notes that because the old did not substantively contain that which can cleanse us and make us clean, we therefore, trusting only in it, could never be perfect. He was demonstrating the deficiency of the first order. He is demonstrating the deficiency of the first order when he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Consider for a moment the the analogy he employs, shadow. In your mind's eye, if you would, think of a light source like a spotlight or the sun. And then think of an object in front of that light source and then you on the other side of that object. You can appreciate something of that object, but because it is backlit, Very brilliantly, your perspective, your view of that object is inherently limited. This is the idea. This is the one part of the first order deficits. Although you can appreciate some things like uh, along the lines of this analogy, something of an eclipse, a silhouette, a shadow, you know, kind of uh, some features or a profile, you can maybe appreciate those aspects of that object but you can't really see or ascertain its fullness. And this is the idea. A backlit object can provide a profile, an eclipse, a silhouette, or in the words of today, a shadow. But that's about it. Now imagine again, you have your object, your light source, and you. And imagine that light source begins to swing around. When did the light source, the revelation of Jesus Christ, begin to swing around the object of Christ? so that we can appreciate it 
when the Spirit gives us eyes to see in the fullness of its glory? That was when Christ entered the scene. When Christ began to preach the fullness of His kingdom, and we see points of contact where this came into fruition. For instance, in Luke 24, the disciples, they're disillusioned, are they not? The two on the road to Emmaus. How can I connect the events that have been happening today with my hopes for salvation and a Messiah? Utterly disconnected in their mind. At that moment on the road to Emmaus, the object stood between the light source and themselves. And the best that they could get, as it were, was an eclipse, a profile, a silhouette, or a shadow. But as Christ opened up their ears to hear, and as He began to share the message of the kingdom, what happened? The light source began to move around Him, as it were, until He illumined their eyes to understand the Scriptures. And then, from the prophets and the law and every portion He touched upon, He demonstrated that He was the fulfillment of the old. And they said in one accord, Did our hearts not burn within us? And they recognized their Messiah. They recognized Him as the fulfillment of the old. And now they could see more than a silhouette, more than a shadow, but they could see a fully illuminated portrait where all of His features were available for their spiritual eyes. They could see the sword, as it were, protruding from His mouth and His eyes, flames of fire, His clothes uh, draped white as wool, feet of bronze, like we see Him, symbolically pictured in Revelation. They could see Him and the wounds on His hands and His feet and understand that those weren't marks of defeat by an imperial kingdom, but they were marks of defeat by the one who conquered death. And as the light of God's glorious grace shined on Christ, they saw Him in His fullness. This is the difference between the first order and the second. What was a profile, an eclipse, a silhouette, and a shadow becomes an illuminated portrait with all its features fully available for us with the Spirit's ability, with the Spirit's enabling to view. It's amazing. This is apparent also the powerlessness to perfect and the recurring nature of the sacrifices. Connected to this idea, this analogy of shadow that helps us understand the difference between the first and second order as also evidence of the deficiency. Any order, that is, which requires recurring sacrifices over and over again demonstrates that that it is imperfect. It does not have the power to perfect. And here we have in this this final clause in the first sentence of our text today, by the same sacrifices, or it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The idea is the evidence that over and over again, this maintenance, this recurring need, this powerlessness to perfect, this constant striving, to return, to return, and over and over again, going through the same cycle, is evidence of the deficit of the old. Well, what does the author go on to say? Our final verse this morning, Christ once for all, over and over again. By contrast, he demonstrates the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ by saying, He is the once and for all sacrifice. We know that His sacrifice is perfect because it happens once And will never and never needs to be repeated. Once and for all the elect, Christ has died. And therefore Christ makes perfect that which the old covenant could not. Secondly, under first order deficits, let us consider powerless to cleanse. Reading in verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? That is again the sacrifices. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. And it goes on to say, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. Verses 2 and 3. The powerlessness to cleanse from sin is apparent in the abiding consciousness of sin. The author says, under the old covenant, under the first order, under the law as it were, there was a consciousness of sin. There was 
this idea that it was inevitable, encumbering them, and something about the knowledge and the experience of sin could simply not be shaken under the old order. Verse 2 again, he says in the second half, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. They would, otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. What does he mean here exactly? There is a contextual clarification, the little closer look at the surrounding body of theology in Hebrews, as well as the original language. The idea is this. When you see that term consciousness of sin, it's more than just an awareness or a knowledge. You and I still realize that sin sometimes clings to us, and often we battle sin, you know, even to the mortification of our own flesh. It's a necessity and a calling. There's a reality that we have, awareness and understanding of the truth that we still wrestle with these things and that we were once a sinner and now we're saved by grace and grace alone. All of these things could, you know, in one sense be a consciousness of sin, but this isn't exactly what the author means. Instead, when he employs this term consciousness of sin, what he's getting at is a persistent notion, a persistent nagging reality of guilt and condemnation. That persistent, unshakable, damning voice, if you will, in your head. That cursed truth, that reality that above me hangs the judgment knife of the guillotine of God's justice. And I am not confident, I am not assured that my guilt and condemnation have been taken care of. Think of it. A bull or a goat is sacrificed on the altar the day of atonement. But you know full well, the next year it will happen again. And then you know in between that provisional sacrifices will be taking place over and over again. So you ask yourself, if there is still need for a sacrifice, I must still have a consciousness, a reality of sin. There must still be some idea or unshakable thought of guilt and condemnation hanging over my head if this process needs to be repeated yet over and over again. You see, the first order deficit, if you view it through the offerings and sacrifices alone, left the adherents, left the practitioners, left even the faithful, it was powerless to cleanse. Only in faith, the Scriptures go on to tell us, in the future and coming Messiah, was there any assurance of sins satisfied and atoned for. This old covenant sacrifice simply would not do. And this contextual clarification of a persisting notion of guilt and condemnation is helpful for us to understand the great relief that we have in the knowledge that Christ has dealt once and for all with the sin debt that we deserved. Given this effect of perfect, full, and sufficient sacrifice, Any further atoning action, listen, would be superfluous at best and blasphemous at worst. I submit to you, both are true. Once the perfect has come, the full and sufficient sacrifice that can truly cleanse any further atoning action, any return such as we uh, saw uh, in our opening illustrations today that the Uh, that the readers were tempted to revert to, any of that would be superfluous. It would be extra that was not needful, but worse than that, it would be blasphemous. It would be denying the once-for-all sufficient, perfect, personal sacrifice of God become man, Emmanuel, with us, Jesus Christ, our High Priest, Savior, Lord, and sacrifice. There was no need for anything else, anything added to, Anything to return to, all of that would be simply to deny the sufficiency and the efficacy, the fact that it satisfied every part and did it to the nth degree, Christ's work on Calvary, for our sins. Praise be to God that Jesus Christ is powerful to cleanse. Praise be to our Lord that Jesus Christ is powerful to perfect. And finally, under first order deficits, Praise be to the Lord that He is powerful to expiate because we see once again that the first order was not. The first order was powerless to expiate. In verse 4 of our text this morning, for it is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Very clearly stated, one simple sentence, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. A brief note of theology for you, two words to consider, expiate and propitiate. Expiate means the removal. It's the distance from that which contaminates. If the person can be cleansed and perfected, he will. that means the sin has been expiated, it's been removed from him. But our atonement is even more sufficient than this. It does not merely remove sins, but it also satisfies the justice that they deserve, and that's where propitiation comes in. Propitiation speaks to a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. So Christ, in the giving of His own flesh and blood, removed our sin and paid for our sin. He removed the contamination from us, and He satisfied the judgment it deserved. But the old system, the first order, the law that was the shadow of the good things to come but didn't have the true form of these realities, which is Christ, it was impossible. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. What was missing here? What was insufficient? Well, in light of this powerlessness to expiate, there was a reminder of sin every year, not just a memory. For one thing, going back a verse in verse 3, it says, But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So if the old first order was powerless to expiate, then there remained a reminder of sins. What does this refer to? Well, your first thought might be, well, I I remember that I'm a sinner over and over again. I can't shake the reality. I can't ultimately be free under merely this system of the sin that clings on to me like so much leprosy. But then we go on and we realize that this remembrance of sin is more than just our cognizance, our awareness of our state. It's much more serious than that. Go to verse 17 of the same chapter. Backing up to 16, the promise of the new covenant is this. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, listen to what he adds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So under merely the old first order, there was a reminder of sins every year. And in, the, in a sense, that is to say that not only did the people realize their great depravity, but God Himself remembered their sins. And again, there was a future aspect of faith in Christ where this situation would change. And it was real for those who looked forward. But again, it was only substantially realized in time, in Christ, when the satisfactory for that sin was paid for, And at such time, those sins were removed as far as the east is from the west. And more important than even our own awareness of our own frailty, depravity, wickedness, and depth of horrific violation of God's law, He Himself remembers their sins no more. He looks to the sacrifice of His Son and sees that the record of that sin is dealt with, justly paid. We are justified. Christ is crucified. We are justified because Christ is crucified. This is the power of Christ to not only expiate, but also to propitiate. This is powerful indeed. Also, the powerlessness to expiate is apparent in the types of blood shed. We see these types pictured symbolically in what happened on the Day of Atonement. We've read in the past in Leviticus, the law, and we find these areas of the Old Covenant ceremonial terms where the blood of bulls and goats are offered and the scapegoat is one of the animals upon whom was symbolically transferred the sins of the people. He's sent into the wilderness of Azazel and the people receive a temporal reprieve from their condition. Well, it says here that it's impossible, in fact, for the blood of bulls and goats for this kind of uh, atoning exercise to actually take away sins. And one reason for this is apparent in the type of blood that was shed. There is no blood, there is no virtue in the blood of beasts, in the blood of bulls and goats. There are several things that are missing. What is missing? 
Well, for one thing, they have no awareness of what they were doing. The, and the bull does not go willingly to be sacrificed. And although they might be innocent of the wrong you committed, there is no category in their being for lawfulness or sinfulness. They themselves are not made in the image of God. It's just a symbol, just a type. It is not substantive. It does not represent a true substitute sacrifice. The nature of that blood that was shed could not ultimately take away sins because there was missing pieces that were necessary. And again, we'll touch on those in a moment and see how they are fulfilled in Christ. Second major point this morning, second order attainments. Corresponding covenant realities are expounded in Hebrews 10. We see the first order deficits. We've seen those expounded in our text. And now let's see how Christ overcomes them, how He supersedes them in His attainments. Second order attainments. What are attainments? Attainment is accomplishment. It's a work. It's something that Christ has done. We think of His deeds that the psalmist proclaims. I will celebrate your deeds. I will make your name great. I will champion. I will make famous the work that you have done. The psalmist is referring to the attainments of the Lord his God. Deliverance out of Egypt, which is a picture of our deliverance from sin. Miraculously intervening on behalf of his own to provide for them a system uh, or, or sustenance in the wilderness where manna appeared and they were sustained and Water broke forth from a rock and promised land was finally delivered to them and the law was given as a gracious intermediary to keep man with restraints from becoming as evil as he could be and also defining the terms of what sanctification would look like once his heart had changed. All these things were the works, the deeds, the attainments of the Lord. Well, the greatest of God's attainments were yet future to the psalmist They were yet future to the first order prophets and they were fulfilled and accomplished. They were manifest in time in Jesus Christ. And now our author turns to highlight them. Notice in verse 5. Consequently, he says, when Christ came into the world, he said, and he begins to quote Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. First order attainment. We'll use the term abolish to describe it. The author begins to explain what he has just revealed as messianic prophecy of the psalmist of old. And as he explains... He declares thus in verse 9. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. Well, let me back up to 8. When he said above, and by the way, this is another one of those word connections. Some of these sentences are a little complicated in their structure. But I think if we look closely, we can follow his train of thought. When he said above, and that's going to be connected to, he abolishes later. And then there's kind of a clause in between. So verse 8. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, parentheses, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And then he comes back. He abolishes the first order to establish the second. So the the understanding of Psalm 40, when he declares this prophecy, What does it actually accomplish? What has Christ attained in fulfilling Psalm 40? Number one, he has abolished the first order. Secondly, he has established the second. And thirdly, we have been sanctified. He sanctifies through the offering of his own body and blood once and for all, all of his own. These are the second order attainments. This is a conclusive connection in this closing, in the second half of our text today. In other words, where the author has expounded on the deficiencies, now he's going to expound the sufficiency of Christ. Where the old order was powerless to perfect, powerless to cleanse, powerless to expiate, now in the abolishing and establishing and sanctifying of Christ's work, all those things receive their fulfillment in Him. 
first of all, abolish deficits superseded in the incarnation. If we turn to Psalm 40 and verse 6, we read the following. I'm just going to touch on the original text because if you do a little study, you'll notice a slight difference in the wording. I'll explain that so you can be ready for an answer. Someone asks you why, and then we'll see what the author expounds. Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. (coughs) Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now in context we see, with the illumination of the author of Hebrews, moved by the Spirit of God to interpret this prophecy that is written in what I call the Messianic first person in Psalm 40. As David pens these words, he's speaking as the lineage of Christ, if you will. But these words will be most true and most powerful when they are on the lips not of David, but of the Son of David. Jesus Christ himself. And when Christ fulfills this prophecy in the first person, this, this, uh, these words, these, this truth, is fitted not only for his mouth, but for his life and for his accomplishments. In his second order attainments, he will do all of this. He will transcend, supersede, and fulfill the sacrifice and offering which ultimately did not meet the desire of the Lord. He will transcend, supersede, and fulfill the burnt offering and the sin offering, which ultimately did not meet the requirements of a just God. How will he do this? How will he abolish the first order? First of all, he will do it in his incarnation. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, as John 1 records, When Isaiah's prophecies of Emmanuel, God with us, and he will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the government will be upon his shoulders. When those prophecies came true in the incarnation, when Christ appeared, he did so taking on flesh, adding to himself a human body, being born of a virgin. And in Bethlehem, when that baby let out its first cry and our Savior was born on this planet. Fulfillment of Psalm 40 took place. Sacrifices and offerings that went before did not meet the desire and requirement of God. But God had prepared a body for Christ. And when He entered into that flesh, became flesh, incarnation, when He took on that body, He was then ready, able, and did in fact accomplish in the course of his ministry, the sacrifice and the offering that was required brought pleasure to the Lord and was the desire of the Almighty's heart to satisfy every aspect of his character, justice, and mercy in the saving of his people. The nature of the substitute sacrifice, as we mentioned before, is now equal to the task of atonement. Again, the nature of the substitute sacrifice, Jesus Christ, was now equal to the task of atonement. Because what? In Christ, rather than, in contradistinction from the blood of bulls and goats, He is sinless. He is conscious. He is a person. He is willing. And He is innocent. And now the perfect substitute taking on flesh has arrived on the landscape of history to satisfy the terms that will abolish the old covenant, which had its deficits, and secondly, will establish the new. Point number two. Excuse me. Second order attainment establish. The second order, the new covenant. In verse 16, we read again in Hebrews 10. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. We are reminded by moving forward a little bit in our text 
of the promise of the new covenant and the distinction. What is distinct? What is new? What is new about the new covenant? What is fulfilled? What has surpassed? What has eclipsed the old? And in part, it is this truth that God puts his laws on our hearts. He writes them on our minds. The testimony of his law stood in two tones, uh, stood on two stone tablets and was a witness and a testimony against the people of God. <clears throat> Theologians have noted the significance of that copy of the law actually placed within the Ark of the Covenant. And where would that be? Underneath the, or the seat, the uh, mercy seat where the atoning blood was shed. Why was this the case? <clears throat> Simply because the law stood as a testimony against the people and required an intermediary. Blood must be shed to satisfy the violations of that law. And so we have that picture. Well, moving forward, we find a significant change. When Christ's atoning blood fulfills what the blood of bulls and goats could never expiate or propitiate, the law moves from two stone tablets as testimony against us, externally judging us, to the inside, actually written on our hearts, where God's desires become our own, and that which was a condemnation now becomes a motive, and that which once declared that we are decrepit sinners now informs our lifestyle and worship. This is the fruits of repentance. This is the evidence of regeneration. This is the essence of the newness of the new covenant. And this is what Christ established, <clears throat> something only he can do. The second order, attainment. In this, we see what was typological and superficial, if you will, external, merely symbol, sign, ceremony, and tradition before was now internal, substantial, final, permanent, and personal. This could also be done not just because, as we mentioned before, that Christ took on flesh, <clears throat> but also because he satisfied the will of his Father. Our verse tells us, <clears throat> by the way, that apparent difference in the text. Hebrews 10 quotes the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Psalm 40, it says, ears, you have, or you have given me ears as his reference. You have given me an open ear. <clears throat> the corresponding translation in the Septuagint is a body you have prepared for me. Both speak to necessary physical aspects that help us to understand that the incarnation is what in, is in view here. But secondly, we also see that Christ was powerful to fulfill the second order attainments, not only in that he took on flesh in the incarnation, but also in that he fulfilled the will of the Father. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. Christ was powerful to abolish the first and establish the second because of the covenant of redemption, the agreement of salvation made in the members of the Trinity. And we see the essential nature of the Godhead as it relates to salvation in this text. <clears throat> Christ is the second person of the Trinity, unique in his office and serving as the God-man in redemption. The economic Trinity, as we call it, was necessary to fulfill all of the conditions to be that sacrifice. John 6, 38-40. John 4, 34, Jesus gives us a very intimate inside look on his love of the Father's will, his commitment of obedience to him, and his satisfying all of these terms in his life. <clears throat> Finally, and in closing this morning, three second order attainments we've covered, abolishing the old, establishing the new, and finally we have the sanctification. When he said above, verse 8, Hebrews 10, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. They're offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first order, <clears throat> the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ 
once for all. Again, that final phrase, hang on to it, saints, for the precious gold, spiritually speaking, that it is. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By the will of the Father, final, complete, manifest, full arc of salvation is and will be complete. The author speaks in fully manifest salvific terms. He looks forward to the full sanctification of all of Christ's own when they, through the course of their life, experience that evidence incrementally and then they are brought up with Him. They are glorified and it's fulfilled in its perfection. Psalm 40 connects this to the prophetic revelation of old. It is written of me in the scroll of the book, the foreshadowings, the prophecies, the pictures, of what was going to happen in the future can only be understood, spiritually speaking. I mentioned to you before, two devout Jews, and they looked to things like land, reinstitution of sacrifices, an old temple order, to fulfill those prophecies in the Torah, and in the writings, and in the, uh, the poetry and the prophets. But they will never be fulfilled by a mere scrap of dirt in the Near East. And there is no sacrifice that will be reinstituted that will be anything but blasphemy. Why? Because Christ has come. And because Christ has come, this perfection, this second order attainment, is satisfied in Him. And it includes the testimony of the old covenant, that which is written in the scroll of the book, referring to the works of old fulfilled to the nth degree. And if you read the prophecies, you will see that there is no man alive aside from Jesus Christ himself and no geographic repositioning, no geopolitical situation that could ever come close to fulfilling those promises. They will all fall infinitely short. But in Christ, not only are they fulfilled, but they are fulfilled in us. And what was anticipated in old is fully manifest when we are glorified finally and completely in Him. In closing, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. Excuse me. This morning we have the Lord's table before us today, which is fitting, is it not? We see in our text, again in Hebrews 10, that final phrase of pure gold, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, which is typified before us today in the broken bread. As we go back, though, to 2 Corinthians, we open in chapter 3. We see the lamentable condition where minds were hardened to this day. Even the author says, Paul, as he writes, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. And we see the veiled old or first order. But then we see when one turns to God, the veil is removed. And now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all then with unveiled face behold this glory. Well, Paul goes on to formulate this beautiful sentence in chapter 4, verse 6, back up to verse 5. For what we proclaim, he says, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This morning in communion at the Lord's table, we remember that because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, our sins are remembered no more. We have here in these elements represented the old covenant abolished, even as Christ instituted this significant change in the Lord's Supper. We have the first order abolished. We have the second order established in His broken body, in His shed blood. And we have the promise of full, complete, and perfect sanctification and glorification. This morning, as we partake at the Lord's table, let us remember and proclaim these truths. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord Jesus, that you have graciously provided 
where the gospel is dramatized before us in these elements. As we partake of them, may you write on our soul your law. May you move us to obedience of the faith among the nations. May you equip us, Lord Jesus, to be diligent servants of others for your sake, as Paul declares. And may you use this entire service to shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ upon us so that we may further see the glories of the new covenant revealed in the perfect high priest and sacrifice, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.